All right, for those of you that don't know me, my name, once again, is Hannibal Rodriguez, one of the teaching pastors for the church. And if you're visiting for the first time, we are so thankful that you're here and you don't know this, but Will and I used to work uh, together. I'm the lead pastor for the Spanish-speaking congregation, and Will used to be my youth pastor. Uh, so we are partners in ministry, partners in crime. We are uh, brothers. We are um, basically twins, except the color of the skin is a little bit different. Um, could you do me a favor? Could you please stand for the reading of God's Word? If you're wondering why is it that I'm asking you to do this, it's simply because I use that as a reverence, uh, to show reverence to the God and His Word, to our God and His Word. We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 22, 23, 24. We're going to skip verse 25 and then read verses 26 and 27. If you guys with me, please say Amen. You were taught with regard uh, to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by the deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Lord, we pray that you speak to us this morning. This is your word. It's not word created by man, invented by man. It's your word. And I pray, Lord, that by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, you use it to bring glory to your name, produce joy to your people, and bring closer to you those that are far from you. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say, Amen. may take a seat. So today we are in part uh, three of this uh, seven-part series, and this uh, series that we have called Weapons of Self-Destruction. We're talking about seven things that when they take control of our hearts, our minds, and our affections, they make our life miserable, and the lives of those we love just as miserable. We're talking about seven sins that have the ability to destroy everything that is beautiful, and everything that is worth living for, seven things that reside in our hearts, seven sins that if we don't deal with them, um, they shape our character and eventually lead to destruction. Now, Pastor Will has been calling these seven daily sins. Um, completely agree with him. Uh, and today we're talking about the third sin in this list, which is this, the sin of anger. Right? So, uh, this is a family, right? How many of you guys just struggle with anger? Please raise your hand. How many of you guys don't struggle with anger? So, you could pray for the rest of us. <laughs> the idea is that uh, my, my job today is uh, to show you that there's a reason why we all struggle with anger. My job is to convince you. That the Bible says that you struggle with anger, that I struggle with anger, uh, and that our anger most of the time, if not all the time, is sinful, right? Um, so this is the way I'm going to do it. Two points for today. We're going to define anger from a biblical perspective, and then we're going to see what is it that we need to do to learn how to kill anger. Not how to manage your anger, but how to kill it. Because the Bible calls us to kill anything that is impure in us. All right? So do me a favor. Um, ask the person next to you. Are you an angry person? Go ahead. Go ahead. 
I got the same reaction in the first service. All right, people, this is not supposed to be a happy moment. It's just... <laughs> The, the reason why I, it's so interesting because Sundays for me is one of the days where if I, if I'm, if I stay with my family, uh, it, it's a day that I experience a lot of anger. <laughs> for some reason, on Sundays, right, the, the Lord's Day. So when you ask the person next to you, an angry person, you didn't even have to ask the question because the person is, yeah, he's going to talk to you, right? But that's not what I want you to do today. I want you to see your heart as we go through this. Because the problem with anger is not the person next to you. It's you. All right? Should I pray? Let's just finish. You guys agreed. All right, first point, defining anger. Ephesians, let me do a little bit of context here. The book of Ephesians um, is an amazing book, like any other book in the Bible. But the, the, the way the book of Ephesians is set up is, is the same way Paul writes every single one of his letters. Right? Paul always divides his letters into two sections. The first section is all about the gospel, and the second section is what the gospel does. He always has the same pattern. Look, any of his letters, right? So in, in the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3 and a half, you will see that Paul spends all this time talking about who Jesus is, who we are in him, how, how do people become Christians, um, the unity of the church in Jesus Christ, all these things that are gospel, 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 gospel. This is what some people have called the, the indicatives of the gospel. Right? Is this is the description of the gospel. This is who we are in Jesus. That's the first three and a half chapters of the book. The next two and a half chapters, because it's six chapters, it's all, it's all about what people call, theologians call, the imperatives of the gospel. Meaning, the things that flow from a relationship with Jesus. Meaning that if we are Christians, not only we believe the gospel, but also has implications in the way we live our lives. So it's impossible for anybody to claim that we believe the gospel and continue to live the same. Simply impossible. Because that's the way the letter, that's, that's the Christian life. And that's the, the way the letters, Paul's letters are structured. You would always find the same pattern. Right? People usually pick one of those two sections. Some people will pick the gospel part because they love it, but they will leave the implications out. Some people will pick the implications, but they don't like the gospel. You don't get to do that. You embrace them both. What is interesting about this passage, though, is that one of the first implications, one of the areas in which that, that should be affected by the gospel, one of the first areas is your emotional life. That's why... In verse 26, Paul talks about anger. Anger is about your emotional life. It's about your emotions. So I, I completely reject when people say, well, emotions are just emotions. No, no, no. Your emotions is part of what makes you a human being. But if you want to see what's in your heart, you must pay attention to your emotions. Because the gospel addresses your emotions. That's why anger is an emotion. Um, what I'm going to explain right now is that your emotions usually flow from your desires. They're never disconnected. So in a way, what I'm trying to say is this. 
If you want to see the reality of your heart, pay attention to your emotions. If you want to see what you really have inside, pay attention to your emotions because your emotions are like voices that speak on behalf of your heart. Your emotions always have secrets. Your emotions are never just emotions. They reveal who you truly are. Now, the reason why I spent a few seconds talking about that is because I need you to see that anger, it's an emotion that you must pay attention to. You cannot say, well, I'm just an angry person. It doesn't work that way. You must ask the question, why is it that I'm an angry person? Identifying why is it that you're an angry person is important. What is interesting, though, is that we have categories of what an angry person looks like, right? Usually the category is someone that reacts really bad or is aggressive or is defensive. And I would say that's an active way of show your anger. But there's a passive way to show your anger as well. But we usually don't see the passive way of anger. We usually focus only on the active way of anger. But at the, same, but at the end of the day, your anger comes from the same place. Regardless of what you do or don't do, anger is still in your heart. And the reason why I know that that's the case, because that's exactly what Paul says here. Amen. If you see in verses 26 and 27, look at what he says. In your anger, do not sin. I'll explain that a little bit more later. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. In two verses, we can learn so much about the theology of anger. Why is it that we struggle with this kind of stuff? Why is it that we do these kind of things? Why is it that we feel these kind of things? Let me say it again. Regardless if you act on it or not. Anger is rooted to your heart. It's connected to your heart. First thing that we learn from those two verses. Number one. That to experience anger is expected. Like we all experience anger. It's just part of what it means to be a human being. If that wouldn't be the case, we wouldn't have that verse there. The implication is that if the verse is there, it's because we struggle with it. If we wouldn't struggle with it, the verse wouldn't be there. Simple logic. Biblical logic. Number two... That the devil uses our anger. That's what he says in verse 27. He uses this as an opportunity to help to, um, to lead us to sin even more. The word foothold there right at the end of verse 27 can also be translated as the word opportunity. Meaning that the devil uses our anger as an opportunity to help us sin even more. What I want you to see there for a second is that the devil doesn't have the ability or the capacity or the power to make of you an angry person. Amen. You could never say to the devil, you make me angry. You, are ang you get angry because you're an angry person. Amen. Angry birds are just angry. It's not because someone made him angry. That's the same reason why you can never tell anybody, you made me angry. 
you get angry because you're an angry person. The devil uses what you already have in your heart. He manages what you already have in your heart. He creates opportunities for you to display and use what you already have in your heart. Stop blaming the devil for something that is in here. Let's just stop blaming other people for things that are in here. It is so easy for me to tell my wife and my two girls, man, you make me so angry. And my wife, because she's biblically sound, she says, don't put that one on me. <laughs> You're angry, man. The third, thing, uh, the third thing that we get from this passage is that there's actually different kinds of angers. Right? So there's two kinds of anger. One that leads to even more sin or wants to lead to sin and one that is righteous. Now, let me make this clear before I explain this. The only person that fully exercises righteous anger was Jesus. Every single one of us, even when we have actually righteous anger, is tainted by sin. And I'll explain that in a second, all right? If you're trying to figure out uh, what righteous anger, all we have to do is pay attention to God because the Bible describes God as an angry God. I, I know that's shocking when, when someone, a preacher, says something like that because we like the concept of the love of God. What I want to argue, and you got to wait all the way until the end, okay? What I want to argue is that if you don't understand that God is a God of anger, that God is a God of wrath, you will never understand why God is a God of love. These two things are inseparable. So let me explain why is it that God experiences anger. Really simple, actually. The Bible shows you that God gets angry toward injustice. That's all through the Old Testament. God hates injustice. That's why he talks about the widow and the poor and the stranger. That's why he talks about being fair. Read the book of Leviticus and all the laws that you have. At the end of the day, it's all about God liking and loving justice and peace and harmony. Anything that goes against that, he hates. The Bible shows you, for example, that God hates sin. It's not that he dislikes your sin or my sin. It's that he hates it. The Bible shows us that he hates what sin does. You remember Jesus in John 11, Lazarus just passed away, and it says that Jesus wept. But the text shows you that he was angry because of what sin does. You know that it's completely unnatural, completely against the design God had for his creation for people to die. That was not part of the plan. So when God sees the consequences of sin, including death, he hates it. The Bible shows us that God hates the wicked. Psalm 11.5 says, the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with passion. Listen up. Who is wicked? You know what the Bible says then? That God both hates the wicked and loves the wicked. At the same time. 
You know, I said that two weeks ago to my church, and they struggle with that so much. But the reality is that God hates the wicked and loves the wicked at the same time. Don't try to put these two, uh, these two things together in your head because you just can't. But that's what the Bible shows. Jesus didn't die just for your sin. Jesus died in your place. You see the difference? See, God hates the wicked. And he loves the wicked at the same time. You see that God gets angry when people are being led to worship other gods. That's all throughout the Bible. You see that God gets angry with religious people, the people that are inviting others to purchase salvation. That's the whole idea between, uh, if you remember Jesus going into the temple, getting really upset because people are selling and doing things in the temple. The whole idea of the passage is that God, Jesus is angry because you have religious leaders participating in a ceremonial ritual that is inviting people to buy something, to buy salvation. Yeah, that's, that's Jesus angry. That's righteous anger. No sin whatsoever. The anger of God is righteous and pure and perfect. Because there is no sin in God. He cannot feel anger that is sinful. And yet it shows you that God gets angry. I think that it is possible to a certain degree for us to experience righteous anger as well. To a certain degree. Tainted by sin. The reason why I say that is because you and I, if you're a believer, you and I are supposed to get angry when we see injustice. If God hates injustice, the Christians ought to hate injustice. We ought to hate seeing poverty and abortion and racism and physical and emotional abuse. We ought to feel a certain degree of righteous anger. See, if we believe in the sanctity of life, if we believe that all human beings are created in the image of God, if we believe that all human beings have value and dignity because they are created in the image of God, when anything brings pain and suffering and anything like that to any other human being, we are supposed to feel certain level of righteous anger. Amen. You're supposed to hate the sin that is destroying your kids. You're not like, oh, they're just sinners. No, no, no. You're supposed to hate what they go through. I'm supposed to hate when a man is trying to hate on my wife. It's not that I'm jealous. I'm not. It's that if a man is trying to take my wife from me, I'm supposed to get angry. If I don't get angry, I don't love my wife. There are things that you're supposed to get angry about. That's righteous anger. Actually, what I want you to see is that the righteous anger and love are two faces of the same coin. We experience righteous anger for the things we love, for the people we love. What is interesting, though, is that that's not what we do. Our anger most of the time, that's what I say, my anger most of the time is sinful. We get angry for stupid things that doesn't have anything to do with the kingdom. See, one of the ways in which you see how um, sinful our anger could be is when you exercise indifference. 
I'll give you a description of things that God cares for. And if we see the same things and it doesn't cause anything in you and you're just indifferent, that's worse than hating a person, you know? Because you're saying you're not even worth my attention. That's where the Christian church is a light and salt, not just a bunch of people that consume. You've you got to learn how to see if that's the reality of your heart. That's why you say that most of our anger is sinful because we don't get upset for the things that we're supposed to get upset. We get upset for the things that we're not supposed to get upset. Therefore, anger is a love issue. Maybe we're loving the wrong things or we're loving the right things way too much. You know where I I get that from is from verse 22. So we all know simple uh, sequencing math, right? Verse 26, verse 22 comes before that. So if verse 22 comes before that, meaning that the root why we have anger here is because we struggle here with something in verse 22. And the text makes it really clear. You were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. The word desires there is a word that I know Pastor Will has used a lot of times here. And it's the word pithomia, which describes this strong desire. It's when you desire something probably good so and so much that it becomes an ultimate thing. It's when you desire something, uh, something so and so much that you turn whatever that is into a functional God. So if you remember the movie, The Lord of the Rings, that, that, that ring was an obsession. It was such an obsession that the creature, whatever that thing was, called it my precious. Desires, deceitful desires come when we love something that we're not supposed to love or we love something so much that it becomes a functional savior, a functional God, my precious. James talks about the same thing in James chapter 4. makes it super clear. Look at what he says, what causes our anger. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Notice here, there's no blame shifting, people. It comes from within. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get and your pleasures. Can you see what he's saying? Paul and James are saying the same thing. Every time we get angry, sinfully angry, not righteous anger, and even there we are tainted sin. Is because we want to be the center of attention. We want to protect, we want to defend, and we want to fight for something that we think is supposed to be our God. That's the reason why we get angry. You are not just a victim of your emotions. Your emotions talk about what you have in your heart. So the question remains, how many of us struggle with anger? And just in case you're not sure yet, 
Let me try to convince you here. Because as I, as I have been preparing for this series, man, I realize that I have so much garbage inside my heart, much more than what I thought. And if, I ha- if I'm suffering through this one, you are going to suffer with me. <laughs> See, we get angry because people mess up, mess, mess around with our me time. You know, the concept of a me time is a very Western concept. It doesn't exist in other parts of the world. It's when people mess around with our egocentric, selfish notion that I'm supposed to have my me time. So if that's your case, let me, and if you're married, then maybe you should have never gotten married. And if you have kids, maybe you should have never gotten kids. The moment you got married, the moment you have kids, your me time goes out the door. So stop getting angry for things like that because you are responsible for your own decisions. You want me time? You're going to have to wait until your kids go away. And actually, that never changes. (laughs) See, we get angry because people don't behave the way we think they should behave. See, we get angry because we don't like how fast people change or how slow they're changing. See, we get angry because things don't go according to my plans. I don't get to control my destiny, but the problem with that is that last I check, you have no control over your destiny. That's the reason why we believe in the sovereignty of God. He is sovereign, not you. See, we get angry because God sometimes don't answer my prayers. You know what's interesting, though? That we are bought into this idea that God is some sort of divine vending machine. If we do the right things, he's supposed to give me what I want. So I'm going to give you this one for free, okay? This is not even part of my salary. (laughs) If you prayed and God gives you something, it's because you needed it. If you prayed and God doesn't give you that, is because you didn't need it. Simple. But that's part of the reason why we struggle, and we're even angry with God. We get angry because we think that sometimes God got it wrong. We get angry because sometimes we think that God is not acting fair. We get angry because sometimes we distrust God. And we forget that God is a righteous God, pure God, good God, sovereign God. He is not going to allow something into your life that at the end of the day is for his glory and your joy. He is not going to bring something into your life in which at the end of the day will be for his glory and, yes, your joy, even if it hurts. See, you see, we get angry. And we use words, and we use social media, which I hate, because coward people do that. And we are indifferent, and we use gossip, and we have a very modern term that we use all the time that is the term of venting. See how quiet you stay? (laughs) Family, right? 
How many of you guys, how many of you guys ever vent, vented? <laughs> Did you feel better? For about five seconds. Because you didn't fix anything. It's actually a psychological thing. In the past, they would say that if you want to deal with your anger, you just got to release your anger. Kick something. The problem is that you kick something when you're little, and when you grow up and you get married, you kick your spouse. That, I call that venting. <laughs> you see, that's not the solution. The solution for your anger is not venting, and it's not suppressing your anger either. But we are angry people. We are angry when things don't go according to our plans. We get angry when we don't win. We get angry when we don't accomplish our plans. We, we, we get angry when people don't give us our spot, our position. We get angry because it's the best way for, for us sometimes to control people or imitate, uh, intimidate people or manipulate people. In summary, at the end of the day, we get angry because we're playing God. We want to be in the center of everything. We have divided hearts. We want to love the Lord, but we want to love ourselves. We want to love the Lord, but we want to love our will and our dreams and our plans. I want to love the Lord, but he cannot tell me that my life is not supposed to be this complicated. You know, what's extremely difficult about anger, though, is that even when you think that you're exercising righteous anger, most of the time, is not as righteous as you think it is. And part of the difficulty to identify why anger is so bad and so, uh, is so toxic is because anger makes you feel good. It makes you, that's, this is how perverted we are. Angry makes, anger makes you feel good. It makes you feel they have control. But the second reason why it is so difficult for you to identify what anger is is because you could always find an excuse to justify your anger. That's why I find it. So, so after a sermon, someone approached me and says, hey, you know, how do you do is I think it's possible for someone to be completely exercise righteous anger and not sinful anger. And I say, well, I don't think so. I'll show you why in a second, but it's, it's almost impossible for us to exercise righteous anger. Because you never leave your heart behind. So actually this week, as I'm preparing for this, I'm remembering this. Um, and I'm going to share this testimony, but you've got to keep in context who I am, where I come from, and what has been my experience. Right? So, you know, every Tuesday we, we collect your prayers and we pray as a staff. And this week, um, in, in the sheet that I had, there was this prayer from a maybe a brother or sister from our church, right, that, um, that is praying for all these good things. So the person is asking us to pray for President Trump, and I think that we should pray for President Trump. He's, if the Bible calls us to pray for our authorities, we pray that we bless, that the Lord bless him and gives him wisdom and guidance, all that stuff. Nothing, nothing unbiblical about that. And then the person calls us to pray for the unborn. Now, because we believe in the sanctity of life, and the kids have value and dignity, then we pray for the unborn. We pray against this evil thing that is taking over our country. We're supposed to pray about that stuff. But then the prayer got a little bit more personal because she says, well, we should pray for the security of our, of our uh, nation. Nothing wrong with that. I think that we should pray that our nation is secure at the border. There's nothing wrong with that. 
Then the person says, could you please pray for the offices that are working there? Nothing wrong with that. It's part of the authority. So we pray for them, for God to protect them and guide them and all that stuff. But then she stopped the prayer. And for a second, I, I'm thinking, okay, so hold on a second. Because this person believes in the sanctity of life in all these areas, but the sanctity of life stopped at the border. And then, in my heart, I'm struggling because I'm thinking, and the other side of the border, we have hundreds and hundreds of people that need to be prayed for because we believe in the sanctity of life. Whatever the government does, whatever other countries do, our, 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 our job is to pray. Now, I'm about to pray, people, and I'm struggling with this prayer. And to be honest, I don't even want to pray the prayer. And I don't even want to pray for the person that is making this prayer. And because the Holy Spirit is so good, he says, aren't you doing the same thing this person is doing? Yeah, you believe in the sanctity of life on both sides of the border, but you ought to believe in the sanctity of life for the person that is making this prayer. If I cannot pray for this person, if I cannot bless this person, if, got, if I cannot ask God to illuminate his or her mind, then I have the same issue this person has. I've put a limit to the sanctity of life. You see, but it requires me taking the time to check my heart to realize that my anger to a certain degree was righteous and at the same time was sinful. My desires. And this reminds me of Jeremiah chapter 17, a verse that everyone's supposed to know. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, people. Meaning that as long as we are here, if Jesus has not returned, if he has not made all things new, we will all struggle with the deceitfulness of our hearts. And this reminds me of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, in which the author says, or the writer says, but encourage one another daily, talking about community, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be heartened by the sin's deceitfulness. Which he's saying then is that we do need other people to remind us that we are angry people or that we are acting in anger that goes against what God wants from us. I thank so much for my wife. A couple of friends that I have, but my wife in specific, she lets me know, man. <laughs> Annabelle, that's, that's anger. Yeah, righteous anger. <laughs> and she says, all right, pastor. <laughs> when she says that, I already know, man. <laughs> I messed up. Can you see it? That's why anger is so toxic, man. It's not just an emotion. He shows the reality of your heart. He shows you how much you need a Savior, even if you're a Christian. He shows you that unless you deal with this, either you kill it or it's going to kill you. 
So that takes me to the second point. Let's talk about what, what is it that we need to do not to manage anger, but to kill anger, right? What I love about this text is that it actually gives us three things, three things that we must embrace um, to learn not, once again, not how to manage our anger, but to kill our anger. So there's something that we need to change, something that we need to believe, and something that we need to practice, all three things, right? Number one, something that we need to change. In verse 23, for example, it talks about that we're supposed to embrace and change this new, um, we're supposed to change the attitude of our minds. Can you see it there in the text? The phrase attitude of our minds is a description of our inner being. Whenever you see that phrase in the Bible, it's, it's just a synonym of the word uh, soul or the word heart or your inner being. So the human beings are, human beings are created. It, 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 it's two parts of the human being. It's the physical part of the human being and the non-physical part of the human being. The physical part of the human being is everything we see, we touch, we smell, we can change, right? But the non-physical part of the human being is our inner being. What Paul is saying is that the way we deal with our anger is when our inner being changes. Because if the problem is our heart, the solution is not to change circumstances. Is that our heart changes. So as a pastor, when I've counseled people that want to get divorced, usually one of the problems in divorce is because of the angry people, right? And they think that because they're angry people, the solution is for you to move apart. Because when you are away from each other, then you're going to stop being angry. You know what the problem is with that? That your problem is your heart. And your heart goes with you. Now you have two angry people living in two angry places that they're going to affect other angry people. Therefore, the solution is not even to run away. Once again, it's not to vent, it's not to suppress, suppress, it's not to run away. You need a change of heart. You need a change of heart. How do we do it? Second point here. Well, you must believe something. And this is what is interesting. You must believe something um, that usually people don't see. You must believe in the wrath of God. This is the thing. When you look at the letter, I told you that at the beginning of the letter, you got all this explanation of the gospel, right? Right at the beginning of the letter, there's, there's a verse that says, why is it that we needed the gospel? Why is it that we needed Jesus to go to the cross and die for our sins? Look at here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. We're going to put that on the screen. It says, all of us, can you say all of us? All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh, meaning submitting to our sinful hearts, following its desires and thoughts. Notice here that he's talking about using the same word for desires, epithemia, and he's also even talking about our thoughts because our inner being is all connected. Whatever we think affects our heart, whatever we have in our hearts affects our thinking. And if it affects our thinking and our heart, then affects our will. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. This is the thing. The phrase, all of us, includes you and includes me. And he says that all of us deserve the wrath of God. 
We all love the concept of the love of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God, and the grace of God. But what I want you to see here is that unless you understand and believe and embrace the wrath of God, you could never understand the love of God. Actually, the text tells you that we are all by nature deserving wrath. You know what that means, right? That we were born into sin. That since the moment we were conceived, we are sinful people. That we're not sinful people for the things we do. We are sinful people because that's how we were born into this creation. Meaning that we're sinful with words, sinful in thoughts, sinful in actions, and sinful in motives. This is why I say that every single one of us experience more uh, sinful anger than righteous anger. Because even when we're trying to exercise righteous anger, there's something that, that taints your righteous anger. So, for example, I use this example. If I see that something is hurting my wife, and I don't feel anger toward that thing or that person, means that I don't love her. But as much at the same time that I'm wanting to defend and protect my wife, there's something in my heart that says, yeah, you want to protect her, but at the same time, you don't want to look like an idiot. Can you see it? Amen. Now, if that is true, if we have sin in thought and motive and action and motivation and word, that means that we all deserve the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is not this neurotic discharge of anger. That's what we do. That's not God, because God is pure and holy. His anger is pure and holy. And this is the amazing thing. This is what you must believe, that we are so broken that we are in that verse. But this is what we must believe. That God is so good that he found a way to forgive, to not only to exercise and do what the wrath demanded, but to love us at the same time. You know, this is the thing with motives. I was thinking, I was thinking about, you know, when Jesus says, when you call someone a fool, it's like if you kill that person, because the motive is the same. But here we have a God that knows that we are like that and finds a way to satisfy his right and at the same time to show us his love and mercy and compassion. And this is the reason why we have Jesus. Have you ever stopped to think why is it that Jesus made the prayer that he made before going to the cross at Gethsemane? Why did he make that prayer out loud? You know, that prayer says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup, which is the wrath of God, um, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as your will. Why is it that that prayer is allowed? Why couldn't he make that prayer in the, in the intimacy of his heart? Well, Jonathan Edwards argues that there's a reason for us. Why is it that Jesus made that prayer like that? Number one. So we know and we understand and we hear that Jesus knew exactly what he was going to go through. He knew exactly what it means to take the wrath of God. He knew exactly what it means to take upon himself the punishment we all angry people deserve. 
He wanted us to see, I'm going to this. I'm, I know what I'm going go, I'm gonna go for. I know what I'm going to go for. The second thing that Edwards argue, why is it that that prayer is there? Is so we know that Jesus didn't have to go. He wanted to go. And you could see what the Lord does amazingly in Jesus Christ. He satisfies the wrath that we deserve. And he extends the love that we so much want. That's the gospel. Your heart must change. But you could only change when you believe that you deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ satisfied what God uh, demanded. But there's something you must practice. You see how in verses 22, he calls us to put off our old self. And in verse 25, he calls us to put on our new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So this dynamic of putting off and putting on is actually a really good description of what it means to be a Christian. Listen, if you want to lose weight, not that you need to, but if you need to lose weight, if you only go to the gym, but you don't change your diet, you don't lose anything. If you only change your diet, but you don't exercise, you don't lose anything. You must learn how to put on something and put off something. People usually like one, but you got to do both. Christian walk is the same way. So put off, thinking, uh, putting off, thinking of anger means this, that whenever you, you experience anger, you got to learn how to identify what's causing that anger. You don't just ignore it. You don't just run away from it. You don't just vent. You don't suppress it. You got to ask the question, why is it that I'm angry? And I guarantee you that when you ask that question, the Holy Spirit will reveal what's causing, what twisted desire is behind that anger. And once you identify it, that's when repentance comes in. There is no transformation unless there is repentance. Don't waste your anger. Allow the Spirit to work in your heart as He points to you the crooked and deceitful desires you have. That's the putting off. And the putting on, it's an invitation and put on what you already have in Jesus Christ. Is for you to embrace and remember who you are in Jesus Christ. It's for you to live what you already are. It's for you to believe again what Jesus already did for you. This is part of the reason why in this church, we, we always say that the gospel is not something that you need at the beginning of your Christian life, but the gospel is something that you need every day. Every day, every day. You know why you need that? Because today you're going to experience anger. Tomorrow you're going to experience anger. Next week you're going to experience anger. Next month you're going to experience anger. And every time anger shows up, the only way you kill it, the only way you destroy it is when once again you remember who Jesus is, what Jesus did for you, and who you are in him. That is the only way. See, if, if we struggle with the me time thing, if I get angry because I don't get my me time thing, I got to ask the question, when was God pursuing and fighting for his me time? Yeah. 
It was because he was thinking of me that Jesus went to the cross. See, if I get angry because people don't behave the way I want them to behave or change the way I want them to change, if I cannot exercise patience toward people that are growing little by little, I have to remember that it was because of the patience of God that Jesus went to the cross. If he was patient with me, what nerves do I have to not be patient with anybody else? See, if I get angry when things don't go according to my plans, when I think that God got it wrong and it's not fair, I must remember that if Jesus took care of the most important thing in my life, my salvation, what makes me think that he's not in control of everything else? If he was good to me for my salvation, what makes me think that he's not be good? He's not going to be good in everything else. Amen. See, if I get angry and I want to vent, vent to him. He can take it. And then he's going to let you know how sinful you are. <laughs> and then he's going to take you back to Jesus. And he's going to remind you, yeah, Jesus died for that one sin too. See, it is only because of Jesus that we can deal with our anger. We have nothing to gain because we have it all in Jesus Christ. And we have nothing to lose because everything is secure in Jesus Christ. So I don't think that we're going to die to our, I don't think we're going to stop uh, struggling with our sin. I think that we're going to struggle with anger all the time. But it doesn't mean that you're a victim. Because because of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that makes the gospel look beautiful is that we can actually grow. And angry people stop being angry. Amen? Amen. You want to pray? Could you please stand?